It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. There's certainly a lot of debate out there when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, any of the vaccines for that matter, and an even bigger debate from a number of perspectives, not only from a point of freedom, from responsibility, from efficacy and application when it comes to masks. So now we have new mask mandates. How were they decided? What was used to get us to that point where we got the latest CDC guidance now being pushed by the Biden administration? Dr. Joel Zinberg joins me, senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And Dr. Zinberg, uh, you know, this is not, a, not only a debate, I think it's an outright fight in this country. Uh, what I wonder is how much and to what extent are the American people, the population, educated on mass? The problem, of course, with masks is that the evidence is all over the place and has the CDC itself has been all over the place in their recommendations starting from the earliest days of the pandemic when they were recommending that people not utilize masks and that includes Dr. Fauci uh, recommending that uh, that then changing uh, and then changing depending on the composition of the masks uh, to the point where then they finally came out when we had vaccines and said that vaccinated people do not need to be masked. Uh, and then just recently, backtracking on that and suggesting that, oh, yes, well, vaccinated people do need to be masked because of the Delta variant. So, it, you know, the education that the American people have has uh, been somewhat haphazard, and it's no surprise that they're confused. Are we educating ourselves better then on how this works? I I remember when this debate was raging last year, and it really, I think, took hold in uh, April and May as people began to question after being told the 15 days to slow the spread and all these other things. Uh, I went by the CDC's own definitions of types of masks, three basic types of masks, and I look at not only the mask itself, But the application of the policy, let me give you an example. I flew a lot through COVID. I still continue to fly. And you stand six feet apart to get on the plane, sit six inches apart or a foot apart in first class on the plane. And the mask and the virus knows when or when your mask is not in place, as well as to your point about the Delta variant. Did anything change in micron size with the Delta variant and its ability to penetrate these blue masks we see everywhere. Now, the, the, the Delta variant is, has slightly different genetic components uh, because of different mutations, but the size of the virus itself is no different. So the policy doesn't match the applicability of the mask, does it? Well, look, the policy is, and, and what the CDC is claiming is that Uh, there is now a greater chance of spread from people who've been vaccinated with the Delta virus than there was with the non-Delta virus. And and the problem is that, you know, this uh, change in policy was based on very preliminary evidence. uh, And frankly, when you really do a deep dive into what the CDC has released so far, 
And that includes a slide deck that they presented within the agency that the Washington Post published. And then finally, a few days later, the CDC talked about this outbreak on Cape Cod. You see that this preliminary evidence is, you know, a pretty thin read to change the policy on. And and basically, look, there were two studies that they relied on primarily. The first was a study out of India, uh, which was small not peer-reviewed. It was a, a preprint. It was just 100 healthcare workers, and they found that uh, there were high viral loads in Delta breakthrough uh, cases than there were in non-Delta breakthrough infections. And the problem with that study was, of course, that all these people had been vaccinated with an Indian version of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not a vaccine that's used in the United States. And it's not clear what uh, what the relevance is for the U.S., where most of the people have gotten the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer. And the more important study that the CDC relied on was this Cape Cod study, uh, which was a, a highly atypical study of about 469 case outbreak uh, near Provincetown, in and around Provincetown. Uh, and 74% of those patients were breakthrough patients. 80% of them had symptoms. And that's completely atypical because we know that the vaccines remain highly effective against all variants in terms of keeping you from becoming infected. And that includes the Delta variant, and the CDC confirms that. So to have a series where there were that many people with breakthrough and that many people who are symptomatic when we know that most cases are ace either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, suggests that it's a very bizarre study. It suggests that there was what's called detection bias, where they were only testing people who were highly symptomatic. Uh, It's strange because India and the UK, where they've had Delta for months now, has not reported similar kinds of outbreaks. Uh, It's odd because, and and it's really uh, disturbing because what they did not do is release the data on what were underlying health conditions in this cohort of patients. Uh, And the CDC puts in the very fine print that this outbreak occurred on July July 4th, following uh, numerous parties and and, uh, social events uh, where there was a large uh, amount of advertising to adult male populations. So we don't know whether the, the people in this study had underlying health conditions, including conditions that are, make them immunocompromised and therefore more susceptible to both infection and to the higher viral loads uh, that, that they were reporting there. So saying that, you know, that the unvaccinated and the vaccinated had similar high viral loads is, is kind of a meaningless statistic unless you know what's the underlying health conditions of those people. Dr. Zinberg, you know, you remind me of something, a question I've wanted to ask a medical professional. The CDC used this study you referenced in India with a vaccine not authorized in the United States in a small sample. Public Health England analyzed up till June 21 or reported as of June 21 of this year. 92,029 cases of the Delta variant is reported, and I I don't remember the exact number, but I believe it was 109 uh, or 117 deaths, of which uh, there were people over 50, and the other part of uh, that group, the case fatality rate, 
were those that were immunocompromised, comorbidities, et cetera. Not the details, but that seemed to be a much wider analysis, yet the CDC didn't have a thing to say about that. Well, I'm asking it, the... yeah, what's coming out of, of England is that people who are vaccinated and don't have underlying medical conditions are very well protected. In other words, they, there's a lower incidence of transmission. In other words, they don't become infected. And if they do become infected, the cases are milder. Uh, they're shorter duration. And that matches what you're seeing in the other variants. So, you know, the, the folks who are having difficulty, no surprise, are folks with underlying medical conditions. And that's why I, you know, was critical of this uh, study coming out of Cape Cod, because we, they did not provide the data there. And there was reason to think that there, that could have been a problem. I mean, it, it begs the question, why is the CDC taking this approach? And I can't assign the reasons for them, but the skepticism is understandable, isn't it? When you have this bad application of studies. Well, look, you know, the CDC is being hyper-cautious. Some might say they're imposing what's called a precautionary principle, that when you have any kind of uncertainty about health risks, you impose lockdowns or, uh, or me various measures first, and you ask questions later. Uh, and, and, you know, the reality is that this was counterproductive here. In fact, the CDC has been counterproductive in, in other instances, for example, uh, announcing the pause on the Johnson Johnson vaccine, uh, you know, undermined uh, the confidence that people had in, vac in uh, vaccination general and particularly in the J&J &J vaccine. Uh, and now here they're at the time when we're trying so hard to convince people to get vaccinated, they come forward and say, well, they, they say take an action which makes it sound like vaccination is not really that protective. You still need to take all these other measures. Uh, and, you know, recent polling shows that about more than 60 percent of the people who have not been vaccinated have doubts about the effectiveness and safety of the vaccine. So when you take a measure like this, it, it just reinforces their doubts. It doesn't help you convince more people to become vaccinated. My guest, Dr. Joel Zinberg, a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And, you know, I, I, I keep pounding this point, understandably why, uh, in this sense. The CDC has research and medical professionals. What you just said about hypercautious doesn't align with those who should be professional enough, trained enough, and capable of analyzing studies correctly. Your points about the use of the Cape Cod study, uh, we're supposed to believe that they are both capable of doing the job correctly, but not capable of using the study correctly. The two don't align. Look, they, they're a very smart, very capable people at the CDC, and the same is true of the FDA. Uh, I mean, in no way mean to align, uh, excuse me, malign uh, them. But, you know, many of these pronouncements end up being political policy decisions, uh, and, and they have to make judgments. And, and I think, unfortunately, some of the judgments are erring too heavily on the side of caution, and they're being counterproductive. 
Here's the question that I will put out there for the audience on behalf of them. What do you think is the right framework of guidance for people saying, do I wear it or not wear it? Or how do I come to that decision? And I know it's a very big question and, you know, trying to sum that up to be fair to you is a tough one, but just a framework of guidance for making the right decision, because as you said, it becomes political and we can't trust the politicians because of the agendas. I think the first and foremost, I would recommend that people speak with their physicians and discuss with them what is their risk from being infected with COVID. Uh, And if you are someone who falls into a high-risk category, meaning you're elderly, um, over 65, or you have one variety of underlying medical conditions that make it more likely you'll get a severe case of COVID, you're going to want to take some more caution than you would have otherwise. Uh, If you're someone who's healthy and you've been vaccinated, uh, chances, and you're young, chances are very low that, first of all, you'll be infected altogether. Secondly, that you'll have a severe case and or transmit it to anyone else. So, uh, you know, these are things you know, that are their individualized decisions. And what some of the, the policymakers don't understand is that, you know, people are capable of responding to risk and they're capable of having discussions with their physicians and, and taking appropriate actions. And in fact, you know, I, you know I, I've recently published an article in, in City Journal that talks about a, a lot of studies indicating that it was individual decision-making to uh, avoid risk that was responsible for curbing the early outbreak of the virus and not the lockdown measures. So, you know, individuals are not as dumb as some of our government officials make them out to be. I'm going to borrow that phrase and use it quite often, Uh, Dr. Zinberg, Dr. Joel Zinberg, my guest. Uh, Exit question for you, sir. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Sometime I'd like to have you back to talk about the vaccine technologies, the comparatives between mRNA, the J&J, and others that are out there. These are the discussions I think people need to have so they can inform themselves. Uh, Another broad question, but... Uh, To that point of, you know, we the people making the decision about our mass, which, of course, the political and the various uh, levels of decisions made on business affects that. Uh, There are the effects of the mass. I fly a lot, as I said. I have spoken to airline uh, flight attendants and pilots, uh, pilots less so, flight attendants more saying they're experiencing dry cough, continued cough, reactions since they've been wearing the mask. Uh, In just a recent flight, my wife had trouble. She doesn't have a breathing problem, asthmatic problem or anything, but after wearing the mask, she started coughing quite a bit. And she said, what is this? I've never had this reaction while wearing this. Effects from these masks are real. And rightfully, people are concerned that they're being forced to wear something that is either not effective or mildly effective, but the long-term effects could be real. Well, look, no one knows particularly about 
specific effects of wearing masks. And you're speaking to someone who practiced surgery for 30 years, and, and I wore masks multiple times a week uh, in the operating room for hours on end uh, without uh, any deleterious effects that I'm aware of, uh, although my, my, my wife might disagree with that. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, you know, masks are an inconvenience. They're, they're uncomfortable. Uh, I'm not aware of any long-term effects, but, you know, ideally you wouldn't want to have to wear them unless it was really helpful. So, you know, if, if we want to get out of this pandemic and have life return somewhat to normal, we, we should try not to impose restrictions and mandates on people unless they're absolutely necessary. And look, there are, there are some people for whom masks are probably a good idea. Some of the folks who I just mentioned uh, to you before who are in high-risk groups, and particularly if those folks are not vaccinated. Uh, they should really be thinking about taking other measures like wearing masks and physically distancing and, if necessary, uh, isolating themselves from uh, other members who might be infected. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean that the converse is true, that, that you need to everyone needs to wear a mask. Uh, so, you know, it's a balancing act and, and people have to be able to discuss this with their physicians and assess their personal risk. Uh, and, and particularly in light of whether they are or are not vaccinated. I mean, I think all of your listeners have to know the best protection they have far better than masks be vaccinated. Uh, and that, you know, even with the Delta variant, vaccines work. Uh, they're effective at keeping you from becoming infected in the first place, and they will lessen the severity and the duration of any illness that you might have. So it's important to get vaccinated, much more important than wearing masks. Good conversations often bring up more questions than answers. So if I can just get one more exit question in children and masks, it's a growing debate right now. One third of the nation's children going back to school this week. It continues to grow uh, into September. Uh, and even uh, the debate over who should be vaccinated or not, should it be children or should it be the teachers? But children in mass, the lowest risk group, is that a good idea? Well, look, it's been very clear for a long time that kids are less severely affected by COVID than uh, adults and particularly than older people. That their, their risk is maybe 20 times less than, uh, of severe disease or, or illness and death than adults. So, yes, they are much less likely to be infected. Number two, there's a lot of uh, data indicating that schools can safely reopen for in-person learning. Uh, there's data, some uh, studies out of Sweden where early on in the pandemic, uh, most of their kids went without masks, and this is like 1.9 million school kids uh, over a four-month period, uh, and they were, it had no deaths very few severe illnesses, and they weren't wearing masks. And the teachers themselves had no increase above other occupations in terms of severe illnesses. So it can be done. Uh, and it's certainly clear that schools cannot be opened uh, when you take other precautions like physical distancing and, and you have the kids work uh, in cohorts where they stay with the same group of 
uh, kids throughout the day so that if there is a case, you can isolate the kids that they were in contact with and not expose the whole school. Uh, but this is a, a case where what's important is to balance, and this is where policymakers uh, have fallen down. It's not simply a matter of how do we lessen the amount of COVID. The important thing is figuring out what works best for the kids and their development and their education. And it's been clear for a very long time that in-person schooling is highly important for kids' development and their social skills and their education, and that they suffer tremendously by having to do at-home schooling. Uh, and, and by the way, this is a, the biggest problem was for poor kids and minority kids who couldn't afford some of the tutoring and, and uh, technology that made it possible for wealthier kids to carry on with their education. So it's important that we get kids back into school. And, you know, it may be important that kids be able to see facial expressions uh, of their peers and of their teachers as part of their social development and as part of their education. So, you know, there may be a role for masks in school, but it's got to be counterbalanced by what are the What's the impact of masking on their education? So if we're going to use masks in schools, it's got to be limited circumstances where there's very high transmission and there's high risk. And again, I would say parents have to speak to their pediatricians and say, what is it about my kid? Does my kid fall into a high-risk category because of some illness they have? Or are they at less risk, and I have to be less concerned about masking than I would, other, than I would be with a child who had other problems? Dr. Joel Zinberg, a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, thank you. Thank you for spending the extra time with me. Sure thing. My pleasure. You can join me live on The David Webb Show Monday to Friday, 9 to noon east on Sirius XM Patriot 125.